Unique Ways with Thomas Gerard emerges with people from all walks of life who through their own unique angle succeed and flourish. Enjoy the ride and welcome to Unique Ways, an audio podcast. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to Unique Ways with Thomas Gerard, an audio podcast. We've got a really distinguished guest today. Um, he is a professor in design in the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at Simon Fraser University here in Canada, where he founded the Everyday Design Studio. In addition, he is a professor and chair of, and chair of design for more than, than human-centered worlds in the future everyday cluster in industrial design at Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. He is the author of the book, Things We Could Design for More Than Human-Centered Worlds by MIT Press in 2021. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ron Wakari. Welcome, Ron. Ah, well, thank you for inviting me, Thomas. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. You ready for 20 questions? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Okay, here we go. Number one, tell me a little bit more about yourself. What do you do? Yeah, so I think you covered a lot of that in the intro. But, you know, in brief, I'm a, a design researcher and design educator. Um, I uh, I think as a design researcher, I... You know, I'm certainly interested in design, but I think I have a slightly different approach in that I look at the way that I think the things that we make in the world and, of course, through designing, it kind of discloses things about the world. To me, I was always more curious about what design can tell us about the world than what design can tell us about design. Of course, it's, it's important. Um, I think if you're interested in, you know, the the impact of the field of design and I think the future of that impact. And, and of course, as an educator concerned about design, designers, future designers and design students. But really my interest is in this, what can I know about the world through the things I make? And then that sort of led, I think you mentioned my book um, that came out last year on things um, things we could design. And so part of this is also unpacking some of the assumptions that we have in design this, uh, for example, that the idea of human centeredness in design and, and just to speculate and think about what might be an alternative to that but I think also something that we're pretty aware is not speculation, but pretty urgent, whether that's climate change or some of the inequities that design creates, or maybe even just questioning why are we always so focused on what's good for humans, a kind of human exceptionalism, and maybe perhaps a kind of principal design has become an obsession that is perhaps a little bit more um, harmful than I think we would like or even are willing to accept. And so anyway, I think that that's really what I try to do is kind of use design and as a way to kind of ask these questions, speculate. And, and the ones that I, I really believe, because I do think we do, you know, obviously there's much more that that we need to understand about the very complexities of, of, of the lives that we lead and the lives that we create. Um, and design is a big part of that. And I think also we, you look at, the, you know, I, I think, again, if I return to climate change, I mean, I'm really... So what have we, you know, the world, for example, we live in a multi-species world, but how much of that is really a part of, of design? So, so those might be the kind of questions I ask. And I kind of have a history of doing that through the work I've done. It's always been about asking these kind of philosophical questions, but then really getting down to the kind of material reality and the particulars of trying to ask those questions through designing something. That's great. Um, just a note for our audience, if you end up liking this episode, um, be sure to check out uh, Dr. Philippe Pasquier's um, episode about artificial intelligence. He works uh, at SEAT as well. 
Um, number two, what's a piece of a key piece of knowledge that makes you different? Um, yeah, and actually, before I answer that, yeah, shout out to Philippe. I think he's a great colleague, and and he does share something that that I share, which is a kind of dual, sort of a background in in, in art. Um, and, and in his case, of kind of uh, AI and generative music, uh, but also a, a, a pursuit of kind of science and research, and um, and 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 I, you know, I think that that for me, you know, I think that's characteristic of a real focus on the particular. I mentioned that about designing when you design something, you're so focused on details, and you're always wrestling in part with the kind of very particular connections that thing have, things have together. They're very frustrating, whether it's, you know, whether it's working through particulars of laying out fonts or whether it's actually trying to get two piece, two, two things to connect together. So it's a very particular kind of focus and a craft. At the same time, really uh, have a kind of conceptual focus, a kind of, as I said, asking philosophical questions. So I think if there's something unique, it's kind of tying together that particular with the conceptual, those bigger questions. And and that relation to my, I mean, my, I started out in, in life wanting to be a painter. Um, and and so in in in, in painting, and, and, and I think that that sense of particular, which is very much, you know, dealing with the materials of paint, literally how to get paint to adhere to, to canvas and how to mix the colors together and not end up with something that's just completely brown. And so you really, you know, you, you, you can spend hours just focusing on that. But then, of course, you're trying to do something larger with what you're making. You, you're trying to ask sort of conceptual, sometimes really difficult questions and sometimes non-intuitive questions. Um, and bringing that to the world of, of academic research and bringing that to the world of design, where I think design has a lot of particulars to it, a lot of material reality of the, uh, and then there's also the sort of pragmatics, the professionalism of design, the industry of design. Uh, but then I think there's also on a conceptual level, the kind of real importance and the impact that design has, the ethical questions it runs into, the philosophical questions, who we're actually designing for and so on. So I think it's maintaining that kind of contradiction. I, I think is something I like to think that I bring um, to, to, to whatever I'm doing. That's awesome. Um, one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on is uh, I reviewed your 2021 book with the BC Review, formerly the Ormsby Review, um, and uh, and found it to be really uh, a really special piece. Um, number three, why this of all things? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, and of course, uh, before I answer that question, thanks for the review. I thought you really actually did capture some of what I just talked about. Mm -hmm. I think some of the kind of trying to do some of the kind of analytical work, but then some of the creative, uh, uh, I guess, kind of um, forays that I tried to do, some creative aspects of the work that's in the book. So I appreciated your review quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, the question, why this? I have no idea. I mean, you know, I, I think you, you, you obviously, you know, a bit of a cliche, but very much true. I mean, it, you know, it life's a journey in a way, and you start off on a certain path. And like I said, I wanted to be a painter at first, um, and then that shifted to I didn't really was not as interested in doing the individual sort of eye-centered work of being an artist. It was much more interested in collective and collaborative work, um, and then really interested in the as I said before, the contradictions that you don't have in art, that you have in design between the practical reality, the material reality of now, but then the possibility that this has really endless ways of thinking about the impact and thinking about the interventions that design does. Um, you know, and I think you you just kind of, uh, uh, you you kind of arrive at these things, but another, you know, another level though, I would say that sometimes you don't get caught up, or I didn't get caught up, too caught up in the kind of 
permanence of categories, you know, what it meant to be an artist, what it meant to be a designer, what does it mean to be a researcher, what does it mean to be you know, an academic, that there's a kind of impermanence to those titles or categories or notions because there's a, there's a lot of threads that connect them together. You know, there's being being critical, uh, being creative, being curious, uh, asking challenging assumptions, thinking past where we are now, like more than human-centered design. You know, how, how do we how do we get past our own rootedness and human-centeredness? This kind of exploration, and then thinking 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 of, of others, which we do in, in, in different pursuits, and, and how how might why, might what you know I do, or what you know how might that benefit others. Um, and those are threads that cut across. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter what you end up doing. You know, I think it's, <laughs> I think the commonalities are some of the pursuits. And you, know, you, you find that when you, when you run into somebody who's doing something very different than you, but actually shares a whole lot of beliefs and a lot of commitments. Um, and you're actually pursuing the same thing in very different ways. It's super exciting um, for me to hear you talk about art and design kind of in parallel in this way, you know, I, as a person who's been educated in art and design, I always found those, uh, I found a, a lot of kind of uh, people perceive those as two very different things that that shouldn't kind of connect in this way. Um, yeah, I think so. I think if you're going to be like, you know, I think you're self-aware and you're self-critical. Um, and I think, you know, when we get into a particular discipline, we are critical about the assumptions within that discipline, but that also should mean that we're not so bound to it and not in a destructive way, but in a very constructive way. And so in that sense that you're not caught up within the bounds of these different categories. Nice. Um, number four, what does your future look like? Uh, yeah, first of all, I guess my future, I would say with respect to many others uh, is quite privileged. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I think that what I have to look forward to is much better than many other people in the world. I think you just have to kind of acknowledge that, but also in the sense that, you know, if I think about my, I think actually Philippe said something really interesting. I, li I did listen briefly to his podcast and, um, you know, I think, yeah, the future is something you got to be committed to because that's when, you know, we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Um, and so I'd also to think about how we are all going to spend the rest of our lives. So it's not an individual thing. And I think privileged in the sense that, you know, I had the ability to, to, to live my life uh, in kind of material ways that haven't really had to take in the full account of what we're a real urgency. Now we have around climate change that for many other people is much more their future um, and and it's our present, which I think is a good way to think about the future. I think sometimes that, that we get too caught up in, in um, it's almost as if the, the future is a kind of repository for fantasies and all kinds of other things that we think are going to happen. And really much of the challenges we can deal with and be much more accountable for are actually in the present. And so I would, you know, I mean, I think I have, I have, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that on as something that I think I, you know, with, with respect to climate change, something I need to be accountable for in the present. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing, just to be more specific about uh, thinking about the book, that and the research that I do and design research that I do and trying to think, you know, I guess in some ways is I was trying to think, well, what else can design be or might design be or what, you know, um, and, 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 and in part because it's such a young, young discipline or young endeavor, despite the fact that we've been designing things for millennia since the very beginning of being of, of, of being human. Um, but nevertheless, I think that that question about you know, in the book was when I wrote this was trying to get ahead of where my own research was. 
um, and in the sense that, you know, I, I may want to unpack human centeredness, but of course I've been so trained and so grounded in, in ideas of human centeredness and design and ideas of humanism philosophically. So how do I undo that? And in part writing is a kind of foray into the future, you know, writing is a way of, but it's a, it's a, it's a good foray to the future. In fact, that you write things down that have a certain permanence, you, you commit to them because they're, they're there literally in black and white on, on a piece of paper. Um, and so I feel, find myself in the, in the kind of future now trying to, trying to live to the commitments that I've written about what, what and how I sh might be designing or should be designing and to, to, to think in this more than human way to think relationally to think about beyond designing for human values and human good and to think about what it means to cohabit you know a world that is more than human um, and is relational and really quite expansive um, and it opens up all kinds of questions and one of the you know for example I do think you know a question I have is our uh, you know, the way in which we think about design methods, um, and I think actually part of the limits of our design methods is the fact that we are very anthropocentric about the way in which we approach design. And that on a kind of material embodied way is, is, is how do you change that? How do, not that you can actually change the fact that you're human, but how do you find to work at the limits of what it is to be anthropocentric? So with materials, that might be a different way of actually uh, relating to them or, you know, things that, 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 uh, uh, for example, we're doing work right now on, on designing in a multi-species context. We've been doing a lot of work with, um, designing in, in a context, focusing on bees, um, and, and, and the multiple species of bees. And then the question really becomes about how might one relate to and interact and understand and partly because we have no choice, but to speak for bees and how does that affect the way in which we design. Another kind of immediate feature for me in in designing and design research is I, I, I talk about in the book this idea that we need to, what I call constituency, that that is who and what we consider. So again, if we think about this in participatory design, we often want to bring in multiple stakeholders, human stakeholders into our project and, and, and discuss the values and the goals of what we're going to design. But if we start to think about this in a more than human context, um, how then do we invite the those uh, um, that are not human, you know, and, and how do we speak for them, you know, and in um, and then how do we determine the values, what what might we design and what is good? And I talk about this as a constituency, a need to kind of create or collect this gathering. This is what Latour calls a um, a sort of parliament of things, um, where you have this kind of negotiation. And it's a collective structure. You know, I think that a collective structure for design, and I think we have to rethink the collective structures that we have for designing. We, you know, we tend to think of that as consultancies or corporations in the UX, you know, kind of industry. And in order to tackle, I think, some of the issues that I'm talking about, the more than human issues, climate change issues, et cetera, I think we have to rethink the way we collectively organize before we even think about designing that supports the way we design. So kind of come back to some first principles is what do we value in design? And then how do we create the structures by which we can actually act on those values? Nice, I like that a lot. Um, just a quick note for our audience. Um, if you're liking this episode, uh, be sure to check out um, our next one. It'll be with Dr. Amjohal, with who works in a very different department, but also at SFU. Um, number five, let's talk about location. How does the notion of place play into what you do? Yeah, that's a cool question. I, I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, I can talk about it. I mean, for me, you know, I, I think that 
Um, I mean, actually, you know, I think also this idea, going back specifically thinking about designing, is that we tend to, um, I think more and more the trend has been to kind of um, formalize design universally as if there's one form of practice of design you might have, say, here in Vancouver, another you might have, say, in South Africa, and one you might have in, in Australia, when in fact, when you really look historically at design, it's always been place-based, it's location-based, it's about the material resources that you have, it's about the cultures that you form. But we can expand, I mean, I think expand on that even, you know, beyond design when you think about, say, for example, indigenous epistemologies that locate ways of knowing um, in place, in landscape, um, you know, and, 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 and of course, there is a much more relational kind of more than human understanding about how you aren't not just part of an ecology, but you very much live with sort of um, other living beings. Um, and they and it's particulars of that combination of living beings that form place. And it's from there that you act. And I think that, you know, I, and I, I think that that's really important with respect to design to break down this kind of idea that there's a universal design and to think about designing in more situated ways um, and to also then be accountable more locally um, and, and then to work with, issues and um, and stakeholders, as I mentioned, but also I think the the, the more than human ecologies that are of place. Uh, and I think in that, that that that's really important. And I see that on a real practical level. So you know, for example, as you, as you mentioned, I I also um, I met Simon Fraser uh, here in, in Vancouver in Surrey. Um, and I'm also at uh, Eindhoven University of Technology in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And on a real cultural level, you can see the difference. I mean, you could, especially I think in the Netherlands, when it's part of the reason why I'm there, where design I think is so much, the, the culture of designing, the understanding of designing, the values of designing are so much about place and landscape. I mean, that, that you know, the Netherlands is, as is, 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 uh, you know, uh, the majority of land being below sea level, uh, the necessity to to live with water, to, but also done through creating, you know, sometimes in very forms of resistance and opposition, creating dikes and creating irrigation systems. But this kind of engineer, no, this real understanding that to actually even literally occupy the space that you're standing on is indebted to a degree of engineering or design um, that you really wouldn't wouldn't be able to be there without that. And that kind of works its way through the whole understanding of the role in design and the place of design, the values of design in, in a deep kind of cultural sense. And I think it really shifts the way uh, in which uh, it's it's thought about. It's thought about more broadly than as a matter of industry, for example. Um, and so, you know, and I think that's, that's something that's really hard to realize just to think about. It's such a different landscape and place here in BC and in Vancouver. It's very even hard to think about land as something that we we don't just, you know, uh, can assume, or there's a different sets of issues around land, all the territorial, the, the unceded territories that, and, and the different histories and colonial histories that have kind of worked their way through and into our consciousness about how we think about land. And that also has affected design. I mean, I, I can discuss decolonization of design here in Vancouver, where it's much an issue that has to be sort of introduced and, and supported and discussed more fully in the Netherlands. It's again, different context. So I think these are all grounded in kind of place. Uh, and I think that's really important, but I think also, um, you know, I think that we, we, it's sort of shifting and ground uh, and grounding the work we do as designers, not so much thinking about this in global economy terms, but thinking about this in geography and place and situatedness, and then thinking about ecologies, not as some broad, 
you know, abstract term, but literally the, the kind of, you know, what's the particular, there's a particular urban ecology if you live in Vancouver that involves humidity, that involves different different um, uh, species of, uh, you know, non-human species because of the climate and, and, the, and the culture. And, and you can ground these terms in more specifically, and then you can deal with the complexity of place, but that also really deals with the reality of the place. That's a very full answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, and let me know when I'm getting way too abstract for you. Just, just no, no, it's it's super good. Um, more connections to the Netherlands. I mean, starting in episode three, we were already um, we we're already going there in many ways. Um, number six, if you had to start from scratch, what advice would you give your former younger self? What a horrible question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's horrible in the sense that I think, you know, I actually, I read this question. I said, what am I going to say to Thomas with this question? And I thought, well, you know, I, I think that there, I think, you know, and, I, and again, horrible in the sense of how do you avoid, every time I try to come up with an answer to this question, I thought, well, how do I avoid a cliche? And I really could not. You know, I think if there's, if there's something I would tell my formal, former, uh, so the word I came out with, well, I think there's a couple of words I came out with. One was, I, I think having confidence in what you believe in. And it's kind of an easy, I mean, it's, it's not easy to understand that when you're younger, you lack confidence because you lack experience. And there's a, a greater sense of the unknown of what happens when you fail. And so it's hard to be really confident or, you know, you want to, of course, the flip side is you don't want to be too confident because then you're just arrogant and cocky without really the basis for, for having that kind of sense of certainty. But, but I do think if I go back, you know, I think that there's a, a and I didn't, I think about this a lot when working with students and thinking about how they and particularly PhD students or master's students, and, and, and how do you position yourself? How do you navigate through the sets of concerns and the questions that you have? What do you want out of this research? And, and not as like an ego thing, but it's really about orienting, orientating yourself, finding a compass and, and, and navigating. And part of that comes down to kind of having a kind of confidence and sets of intrinsic beliefs. I mean, not to be blind about your own beliefs and just to blindly apply them, but what are the tools that you need to have a degree of confidence that allows you to act from intrinsic kind of motivations, less so explicit. And again, you know, when you're younger, it's so much about the world around you and trying to, trying to get, uh, I guess, some level of confirmation from the world around you. But, you know, again, if I had that extra bit, I would say, you know, well, screw them, <laughs> you know, just do, do, do what you, you know, what you, stick to what you, what you believe in, 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 in a sense. But I do think that, that is something you develop that really allows you, grounds you, it allows you to ask questions, I think in more interesting ways, and then to act in more interesting ways, and actually ways that I think are more beneficial. Um, so I don't know, I guess that's that's what it would be, I think, to have the confidence and to kind of cultivate that kind of intrinsic understanding of why you believe in what you believe in and why you think you should act, with of course the self-awareness to, to correct <laughs> when you really should correct. I like this idea of the compass and kind of being able to visualize um, and navigate, um, you know, having that idea in your head and, and letting that kind of drive you forward. Um, number seven, what's your day in the life like? Yeah, again, I think it's pretty privileged. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't have, a, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, yeah, I have a lot fewer concerns than I think a lot of other people have in their daily lives. And I feel pretty privileged and lucky about what I do. Uh, but, you know, get down to the, I mean, again, it's also pretty boring. You know, I think if you get down to the, the nuts and bolts, you know, you get up in the morning. I actually, because of because of my my affiliations in Europe, I end up doing a lot of calls in the morning, quite early in the morning. It's their end of the day in the Netherlands. That's at least when I'm in Vancouver. And actually, when I think about it, 
my what happens in uh, you know in a given day depends on where it goes back to your place question it really depends on where i am at any moment but um yeah you know do my workout meditate yoga whatever it might be um and then try to get on to the the particulars of the day um and i think what i like about the work i do is those particulars have you know, I, I can spend a day just talking to a lot of people. I can spend a day kind of just working through a, 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 a design problem, so to speak, about how we we're trying to make something or working through the crafting aspect of that. I can come to the studio, um, engage with everyone here, but also work on some uh, real particular kind of problems, but also at the same time have some wild conversations, you know. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's how I characterize my day. I can relate to that. I mean, I've mentioned it before on the cast, but um, being in three different geographic locations at once, maybe teaching a typography class in Vancouver and then being in a conference in Europe and talking to a school in India, you know, all at the same time, um, you can kind of have three copies of yourself, which is really nice, actually. Um, number eight, lifelong learning is a popular topic these days. How do you stay up to date? Uh. Yeah, I mean, I guess some of what you mentioned, I mean, I, again, and I feel pretty lucky this way. I mean, I feel lucky as a, you know, as a professor that, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a, first of all, I'm just, you know, surrounded by, you know, some of the young and kind of like smartest people I know. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, mostly the students. So, you know, whether, whether they're undergrads or, or grads or PhDs and, and, you know, that's, these are the people I talk to every day, all the time. Um, and, you know, and it's like having, it's like an extension of it's the collective mind, you know, mm -hmm. having like hundreds of other curious minds that you get to, you get to check in with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, but that's part of, I mean, I, you know, and I, you know, I learned about how much more, not just, I mean, everyone talks about, oh, you should listen. And I think listening is a good thing to do. You're very appreciative of, of what other people, people's perspective, but also there's a real enlightened self-interest in listening as you learn a lot. Um, and and trying to understand what are the concerns and 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 questions and you know and experiences that others have and that really keeps particularly again and I think about this in the professional world of trying to do the work I do um, and and so that's really helpful you know and then I think the other thing that goes with that is, is as you mentioned earlier is travel I mean I'm, I am um, lucky to to be able to travel I mean I often concerned about the kind of carbon footprint that that creates and try to find ways to offset that but at the same time you know this over the years just have created this i mean for me i think we have a really wonderful network i mean of, of people literally throughout the world um that i'm in pretty good contact with and 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 you know i think when you but i think there's one thing to be in contact with people online which is a regular feature of life of daily life now but to go to another place to to kind of embody that and sets of concerns and and to sort of infer what's interesting, maybe it's not told explicitly, or to kind of get a more of a gestalt of a you know when you are on a trip and you're talking to different people, different place and you can see what the sets of concerns are. And I like that urgency. I mean, I tried to bring some of that. I mean, honestly, it was so helpful for me when writing the book. I really felt the questions I had, the urgency I had about those questions about design and what's the value of design and what should we be thinking about and arriving at this idea of cohabiting and arriving at the idea that maybe we need to think past what we've done in design to get to issues of climate change and equities and try to work through ethics in a different sense. That was from, you know, people at, at students and people and, you know, and again, the range of people that I come into contact with, you know, whether they're, um, and, 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 you know, from, from where, whatever state they are, you know, stage they are in their career, 
but I think related to design, there's some really uh, uh, urgent questions, but also interesting ideas and, all, and, and pathways and, 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 and frameworks. Uh, I don't want to say solutions necessarily, but approaches to kind of tackling this. So I think that traveling is, is really helpful in that respect, that, con that context shift. And in some sense, you kind of start to feed off of that context shift because there's constant context shifts because they keep you questioning and, and they keep you thinking, you, 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 you know, they, they give you a really productive degree of uncertainty. You know, it's kind of the, the, the thrill of kind of having some level of knowing, but a lot of not knowing. And so that kind of keeps you going. And then reading. And looking, you know, looking at work and reading, and always seeking seeking out, you know, design. I, I'll always go look at art, and and then trying to read stuff that's not my professional read. You know, I also have the reading list. I have to what I call the mercenary reading that I have to do for work, uh, but then always being sure that there's something um, in my bag or on my shelf that has, got, has nothing to do with work. Nice. Just about halfway here. Number nine. What tools do you use? Are you entirely digital? Do you have an analog um, approach at all? Yeah. So I don't know what tools do I use in like daily in daily life or tools I do to make our work or just in general. Sorry. Um. Yeah. Tools. Tools for work. I. I guess would be a, a common kind of uh, way to respond to this. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess you know, I think about like proximity. I think about the tools that I have around me, the tools I bring when I travel, and I, and I have to admit they're getting less and less. And, and I have, you know, and, I mean, really to be real specific, I mean, I think I'd come down to if I really had to, all I really need is my phone and I need Apple notes. And I'm pretty good with that as long as I can also draw on notes, which you can sometimes do, or you can always scan stuff. Yeah. So, you know, in that way, I think that that's, um, you know, I think that kind of, of course, I, 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 I use a little bit more than that, but it's been, it's been I have to say, you know, I mean, I think that on the kind of really specific day-to-day -day work level, devices have gotten far more distributed. Um, tools have become simpler for me, and and um, and and I think it's so. So I think that's you know, I think it's always a question of being able to like I I, I mean I I uh, to be honest, I, I wouldn't be able to survive without Dropbox because mm -hmm. I don't need to carry anything. I can always just access something, mm -hmm. uh, access data. Um, in terms of work, you know, like the design research we do, and this is something I've always wanted to bring into digital technology and digital design from the very beginning, was a, a different sense of materials and not different sense of materials for the sake of materials, just because of the different, I don't know, ways of, you know, what they, they, they offer you in terms of engaging the world or just slightly framing things very differently. And to be specific, you know, if I look at the work, we have made things with wood, with ceramics, doing a lot of work now in textiles. Um, and so there are these different kind of craft, they're always digital objects in the sense there's some kind of embedded electronics. Electronics are always a constant. So I guess in that sense, we're always working with, with um, uh, uh, you know, whether it's, it's programmed, but a lot of electronic hardware, circuit making and so on. But of course, it's also very distributed. I mean, I, I know one person can do it. And, you know, so I work with a team, not just here in Vancouver, but it's also a network of people, a lot in Netherlands, but also around. And, and so a lot of this kind of like tools out for me, they also kind of get them secondhand kind of experiences. But I always, you know, try to work, even though we, I don't, I'm not experienced enough to do a lot of the weaving. I've certainly worked on the looms to try to get an understanding of what that is. Mm -hmm. um, so 
Yeah, there's really a range. And I, one of the things I like in our work, and I really want to do this, and I just think, I always thought, think about, I mean, I got into, you know, specifically my main, I guess, flat, where I would plant, where I, where my flag has been planted in terms of design is in human computer interaction and interaction design. So it's very much computational and digital. Um, and, and I've always approached it in the sense of design and I've always seen design as so broad in terms of the materials and the things you can bring to the making, which I always thought was very narrow in the sense of digital technologies, but so focused on the electronics and the software and sort of expanding that is something I've really kind of tried to pursue. And that has meant an expansion of tools that we use, but also then expansion of skills, which then comes through as expansion of people. Um, that kind of embody those skills or have that craft ability, and 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 I guess I sometimes come to it in in different levels of proximity. I can relate. I have a foot in interaction as well, and you know, I think I first started trying to do that in a very kind of uh, um, digital way or 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 non physical way until um, until the making started entering that and the maker culture and then there was mm -hmm. necessity for the for the tangible things. Um, we're at halfway here. Number ten. How do you deal with the work life balance? I don't know. I'm probably the worst person at that in the sense that you know I think it's so episodic. Things change. But I also think that, um, you know, I think I think there's something to, I you know, I think you, the kind of, it goes back to this question of permanence, like, you know, I mean, how much, I mean, I think it's actually quite porous, that boundary between whatever, I guess, your work, your professional life and your personal life or your family life. And of course, there's dangers. You don't want it to be to totally, when that's a very point of your question, you don't want it to become one and the same. Mm. Um, but you know, but I do think you, you kind of, I think what's, it's, it's interesting in the way that, I mean, I think you, you, there's a balance. I think, I think balance in general is something, but I think that balance in general comes down to what, you know, a lot of these things could fall away very quickly and you, you, you like work could literally fall away quite quickly from my life. And what's important, of course, is family. What's important, of course, is who you care for. Um, and so in that sense, that's always a return. You know, I think I think if, if anything, work-life balance always has to come back to what are you going to return to that you actually really care for, and 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 not necessarily what you care about, but who you have to care for, and 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 what you value, and in part that's also your own health. So I think that 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 drives a lot of that question. Um, but you know, I think the the one thing I mean, it's again maybe it's, it's a, and again it's it could can you know I think it's definitely a privileged position, but I think I think trying to always locate that kind of passion. Um, I was trying to locate that degree. Of, I mean, it's an overused word, but that degree of fun, you know, mm -hmm. um, and 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 I think when you lose sight of those things, um, then that's really big, better indicator than the fact that maybe you didn't make, you know, um, yoga class or something. And that your life balance, your, your work life balance is all shot to hell. And I don't necessarily think that way. Eleven, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? No idea. Um, honestly, I have no idea. I have this. I, I actually was was talking to someone uh, recently, and it was just it came up. I think we were doing something, and I said I had this this fantasy that if I wasn't doing what I was doing, I'd be a sign painter. Don't ask me why I said sign painter. Although I think what it is is just that I think it is an escape fantasy. It's like uh, where you 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 nothing else in the world, but you're just concerned about maybe you know 
the curvature of the S in, in painting that letter, you know, that word that you're, that you're doing. And I think it's a kind of uh, thing I can relate to in the sense that my concerns with the particulars and details and making things work. And it's a comfort thing. Um, you know, I, I, you know, if I had to really, but if, you know, if I, and I was thinking about this and I think it, it's episode, it changes too. I mean, not, there's so little that depends on when you ask the question, but one thing I, I would say though, that I've, I'm starting to think about now. And I mentioned earlier, because we've been focusing on trying to think about designing a multi-species world. Mm -hmm. And I, as I mentioned, we've been doing this work now on bees and it's been an incredible work. And we've been, we've been doing a lot of work with people involved working with bees, whether they're ecologists or they're hive keepers or they're biologists or they're, they're, they're um, concerned about pollination gardens, et cetera. And, you know, in, in, in earlier in high school, I hated biology. Now I have a, <laughs> The whole thing where, wow, maybe I could really get into that. You know, I, I think it's it, it it is that kind of like door opening for me. For others you know, who, who very much inhabited that world of biology, it it it's not obviously. But uh, but anyway, maybe that's maybe that's a, a more straightforward way to answer your question. It's a good one. Um, Twelve. What would you not like to do career wise? Ah, no idea. I I I, I you know I I think I think it's just about. Like I can't, I mean, I, I don't want to put down somebody else's work, you know, I would say, Hey, well, I wouldn't want to be X and that's, Hey, that's what I do all day. You know? Um, I mean, there's certain things I can't do How about that. And there's certain things that I would not thrive in. And there are certain things that, that I think where that would, I mean, I, I, I think there's something about you do the work. Yes, you do it for yourself, but you also do it for your, what you feel you can kind of offer to others. Um, and I think a work in which I felt like it was so self-contained, I mentioned being a sign painter, so I don't know, that says sound pretty self-contained, although someone could enjoy the signs you paint, I have no idea. Um, yeah, I think that would be it. Something where you feel like you 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 kind of don't have those points of contact, where you can't be kind of, in some sense, you know, doing offerings. Not that you're totally selfless, because you're not, but to be offering up things for other people. I mentioned this in a podcast before, but in my early teens, I worked in an upholstery factory, sweeping up upholstery pieces, um, <laughs> which can be kind of interesting, you know, yeah. the materials and stuff like that now, but uh, I wouldn't want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I almost said, I, I was, I used to live in New York, and at one time we were going to rent this uh, loft, and it was actually was a, a pillow factory, and they did down pillows. Um, and it was in the floors, you could literally see the little spikes from the, I don't know, I guess it would be the stems of coming off of the feathers mm -hmm. stuck in the floor. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating because it was just like, like decades of doing this. And it's just that, uh, so yeah, I can imagine sweeping, sweeping that up or having to take that off the floor would be kind of a pain. Um, 13, what's your favorite word, quote, or sentence? You know, I, I think that, um, I don't know if I have an enduring one. I can tell, actually, there's one I think I thought about for this because, and actually it's just, it, it, it's topical. And the last, I mean, it's just, of course, I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Salman Rushdie. And, and of course, just, just the, you know, what happened recently in the tragedy, I think this kind of, a, this, this, this kind of uh, attack on imagination, this attack on, on, authorship just just what happened and then the physical attack of him but this was something i was listening to a podcast so i'd like i think I'll, I'll use this and, and it actually was a podcast i was listening to of him before that 
Um, and I was actually really fascinated because it's some work that I, I, I'm really interested in the idea of speculation and speculation as, as a kind of viable way of doing research. Mm -hmm. um, and he was talking about this idea of um, fabulation and, um, and nonfiction, fabulation and truth. Um, and, and, and he talks about, um, the quote he says is, is how reality is established through make-believe. And, you know, there, I think, and I, and I think it's really interesting because he's talking, she was actually specifically talking about a trend in literature, this kind of auto-fiction trend, which, which is this idea that, that, that fiction comes out of, it's this combination of autobiographies and fiction. And so one grounds their fiction in their autobiographical life. And what he argued, I mean, it actually does touch on parts of what he's saying, but what he was lamenting was the loss of fabulism, as he calls it. So that the ability to kind of um, utilize imagination as a tool for understanding the world or, or reality. And, and I, I can relate to that because I think I make odd things. Like I make a ceramic bowl that tilts to understand how we relate to technology. And so in some sense, I didn't really think about this, like, you know, in the context of this, of this sentence, it makes sense. It is kind of a, a fabulistic kind of object. You wouldn't make this normally. I call it counterfactual, but you could see it as almost being, you know, a fabulism. And, but yet it's one that has some insight or disclosing properties about what a real world might be, i.e. how we relate to technologies in our home or how we relate to technologies over time. Um, and, and, and I think that that kind of, you know, he also talks about it in political terms. He talked about how if he, th if he sees it for those non-European, non-Western writers that often use fables as resistance. Uh, and he talks about, as uh, um, um, a Colson White, that uh, he wrote about the Underground Railroad, but talked about Colson Whitehead. But as if the Underground Railroad, of course, the Underground Railroad, where for 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 um, during the slave era in in, in the U.S. And, and and escaping slavery, but wrote about it literally as an Underground Railroad. So this idea of using using uh, imagination and fabulism as a form of resistance, um, mm -hmm. and I think it is an ongoing way of kind of trying to figure things out in the world. And I think design often too much is about trying to like, it, it's maybe, I, actually, I don't, I think he wasn't quite being fair to auto fiction, but nevertheless, it's kind of like, like trying to be the auto fiction of the world is trying to get people to ease of use or, you know, or this is going to be something that's going to be good for you, or it's going to be, a, a, you know, uh, uh, aesthetic in the sense that it, there's not enough friction, there's not enough resistance. And I think that there's something that 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 that, that we can open this you know this space up. And it, it actually reminds me of another another quote. Actually, this was Alan Lightman, and he was talking. He's a physicist and also a fiction writer um, at MIT. And and he was actually quote. I think his this quote actually I think comes from Richard Feynman, another physicist. And he was talking about imagination in physics and the role of imagination in physics. And, and if you, you, know, you think about where theoretical physics has gone, or you think about the thought experiments of, of Einstein or, or other physicists, this real role of speculation and imagination. But, but Feynman's quote was um, that the, the role of imagination in physics is imagination in a straitjacket, meaning that one can speculate about theoretical possibilities, but one in physics at any rate, that, that must accept in some sense the past discoveries or traditions, unless one's really making a paradigmatic break. But so for example, one can imagine a different form of gravity, but one that would have to make some 
um, uh, uh, allowance or acceptance of the ideas of theory of relativity, for example. Um, and 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 I, I think this is interesting. I, I like this in terms of the the, the research they do about thinking about and design, where it can be speculative, but there's always the friction of the material world in some sense of putting it into the world is so different from art. I mean, art is put in the world, but on a kind of symbolic level. And of course, a lot of people might argue differently about that. But, you know, design is not necessarily put into the world in a symbolic level, but on a material level. And to me, I think sometimes having that imagination or having that fabulistic or having that speculative approach to kind of have as a form of resistance against that material world, but also a way of actually engaging it and discovering some kind of reality. And, and, and so that's why I really like that, that Salman Rushdie quote. When I did my undergrad in design, I had a friend tell me that, um, you know, if you're to ask me a question, by the time I finish answering the question, you'll have forgotten what question it was in the first place. <laughs> um, number 14, what's your least favorite word quote or sentence? I don't know. I don't have one. I, I think it's unfair to words. You know, but I, I think in the sense of words and sentences, I mean, you know, like I, I gave you, I gave you, uh, what did I give you? One, two, three, four words because make believe is, is hyphenated. And then I went on a whole, I gave you about like a thousand other words to kind of explain it. So there's so much interpretation in, 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 um, in words. So I don't think there's a word or a quote I don't like. I mean, or, or if I did, there's a sentence that you don't like. It's, it's the underlying belief behind that sentence. So if there's something that I do get up, I don't like, I get upset about, or, or I think are these, when people speak as if they're self-evident truths, Mm -hmm. and, and you know, so I sometimes I think you know you, you like for example you know you can encounter that in in design. If I'm going to make an argument around design, people might say, well, how does that value? You know, what does that contribute to the practice of design? How does that make me a better designer? Um, how does that improve the, the 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 professional field of design? Nothing wrong with that question unless it's presented as a self-evident truth that that's what design research should be about. Um, and because then there really is no, the, the, the space for discussion is so much smaller. The space of possibility is so much smaller. And, and, and I think that, that, that that's where I get kind of like, you know, where, where, where I think it's like, again, people, some people that want to rule, uh, you know, utilitarianism or pragmatism or kind of efficiencies or productivity, economics, for example, or, you know, you get this in science, you get, you get this in physics, you know, that validation. Um, and so I think when someone really pronounces this kind of self-evident truth that this is what it has to be, um, yeah, then there's, there's I, ha I hate that. There's there's nothing to discuss anymore. I feel like some some of what we're talking about here is problem solving versus opportunity finding and how designers kind of, you know, bridge those two. Um, number 15, if you had to pick one word to describe yourself, what would you choose? Oh. It wouldn't be problem solver. That's hyphenated. So that's one word. I don't know. That's a hard question. Can I can I pass? You can pass. All right, pass. Um, so we're approaching the final stretch here. Number sixteen. What keeps you up at night? I'm a pretty good sleeper. I will say that. I think I just try to exhaust myself during the day. So it's a kind of physical thing. But that's a. You know, I, I and I think you're really getting anxieties. You know, so 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 what anxieties do you have? And everyone has their own particular kind of anxieties. And and I think mine is kind of rooted. And I think I think as I mentioned earlier, some of the kind of like personality trait or contradiction I have to be very focused on the particular, to get really down into some really particular, very very specific. Some you know, it could even be you know, no matter how trivial, I'll dive right in. 
but to the same time have a kind of like see a kind of conceptual significance to it. And I guess that opens you up to the question of well, really, how how have you gone have you gone too far? Like, is that really relevant or meaningful to anybody? This, and of course, the, why it creates anxiety. I mean, of course, we all have that question: Am I relevant, or is this relevant? But where the anxiety comes from is the degree of passion and commitment you put to that thing, which may not be very meaningful to others or meaningful in the larger scheme of things. Which, you know, I guess that's just kind of anxiety you live with. I mean, it's a kind of absurdity that you 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 kind of keep going. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, your your, you know, we we. You know, your, your your questions are really, you know, I mean, how much, you know, if I think about the time, I might deliberate over what I'm going to eat for lunch, you know, and it, it's kind of an absurd amount of time spent on something that's really quite irrelevant. But, you know, so it's something that doesn't go away. So I think the anxiety part is something that it keeps you up at night. But I think the good news is you eventually fall asleep. Nice. 17, what's a dream you're chasing? I saw this question. I thought, you know, I just think like, like, okay, so I'm not. I, the, I don't know that I that I that I chase dreams. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I just I just don't think that way. I certainly I think about kind of goals. I do think that 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 I you know I think you it's aspiration and 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 aspiration I think is of course something that you don't have and you aspire to, but I think also recognize the kind of humility of falling short. And 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 living with that contradiction, and I think that's fine, and I'm okay with that. And I would say, you know, I mean, if anything, you know, I just try to. I mean, I'd like to try to be generous, and I know I fall short of that. But I think generous also goes intellectually, generous in terms of the ideas, generous generosity in terms of what you're willing to entertain. Not not that you should just be entertaining everything, but I think that kind of willingness to kind of kind of go for it and 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 follow, um, and follow others. Um, and see where that leads without kind of knowing the answers or even the, the, the proper the degree of risk that might be involved. And of course that, you know, that, that has its limitations. Um, but I think acting that way is something, yeah, I would like to, uh, I would like to try to find ways to have that, maintain that degree of generosity. 18, what inspires you? I guess that's the same thing. Other people who have that. I think, you know, I think it's some things I've talked about. I think some of the people, so I think some, I think when you see someone who has a kind of in, in, in internal compass, I think that kind of intrinsic motivation. I also kind of, but, but then I think also really, you know, I think that those who kind of challenge the kind of inequities and, 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 you know, I, 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 that, that, that are, have a kind of, I mean, sometimes it can go to, it can be, you can go too far with a firm belief in what's right and wrong. Um, but, but, but I do think that, that I think that there's always something about commit, kind of commitments and action, you know, people who have commitments and then act on those commitments. It's something I, I find uh, pretty inspiring. And then I think also just like, as I mentioned earlier, just the people I encounter, the students, uh, the other, you know, my colleagues, other people doing work similar to me and just inspired by the kind of questions and kind of answers that they come up with, I just never would have occurred to me. 19, any advice you'd like to share? I don't know. I think I've thrown out a lot of free advice. I feel that. <laughs> so I think I'll stop now on my head. Okay, 20, here's the good one. How can our listeners keep tabs on you? Where are your links? Uh, yeah, so I think um, Twitter is a good one. So at Romakari, I think that uh, we are on the web. It's uh, EDS for Everyday Design Studio. 
SIAT for School of Inter School Interactive Arts and Technology. So that's S-I-A-T dot S-F-U dot C-A. Um, and I think those are the best ways. Okay, I'm going to pull that up in a couple of minutes here. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Ron. Um, you know, so much depth in what you're saying, which is, uh, I imagine, reflective of SIAT. And I think uh, that's a good thing. Um, but hearing about um, how you're spending your time with students every day and how that kind of impacts um, your thinking and, and the things you talk about, I think is uh, is really great for all of us. And I think we can see the generosity in that. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks again for the invitation, Thomas. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. If you like today's podcast, I encourage you to have a listen to other episodes. You can easily find them at uniqueways.ca or wherever you find podcasts. You can also find us on social media. And thank you. It's you that makes these great, and it's you who these are for. Stay tuned for more Unique Ways. Mm -hmm.